Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? That sound in the background is a very, very fast train barreling through the countryside of Japan. I uh, just got back. It was my first time there, and I have to admit I went with some trepidation. Uh, my wife and I were traveling with our seven-month-old son, and uh, of course it's a 16-hour time difference. We've been trying desperately to get him to sleep through the night. And of course, there'd be lots of planes, trains, and automobiles, a different language. Uh, we just didn't know how it was going to go. But as anyone who has ever been to Japan probably could have predicted, it was great. The food was fabulous. The temples were impressive. Tokyo is a an experience all on its own. And our son, Cole, handled the time change like a champ. And he was possibly the most popular man in Japan. The Japanese apparently love babies. But the trip also got me thinking, what if you could put Japan's world-class transport system on steroids? Make it faster, way faster, much cleaner environmentally, and a lot, lot cheaper. Free, in fact. So that's the basic idea behind Hyperloop transportation technologies. Think of a big, long tube on pylons between, say, London and Edinburgh. Then suck all the air out of the tube so that there's almost no atmospheric resistance, almost like outer space. Which means that with very little energy, you can send a transport pod zooming through it at incredible velocity just short of the speed of sound. So that means you could cover London to Edinburgh or LA to San Francisco in just over half an hour. This week's guest is Dirk Alborn, who is the CEO of Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. And he's gonna come on in a second to explain how it works and how close this whole Hyperloop thing is to becoming a reality. Basically, you take all the air out of the tube, so it's a capsule now can move at the speed of sound using very little energy because it doesn't encounter any resistance. So I've seen uh, online it's 760 miles an hour is the, is the top speed? Yeah, so it's right below the speed of sound, actually. So Because um, you can't have a sonic boom inside a vacuum exactly. tube. Exactly. Let's, let's put it this way. Things get... 100 times more complicated when uh, you know we talk about the sonic boom and you know supersonic flows so keeping it right below you know makes it much right. simpler so the idea is you're you need to build a giant very long tube say between Los Angeles to San Francisco so yeah Los Angeles to San Francisco was um, is probably the most famous one because we have a high speed rail project here that's 68 billion dollars and the Hyperloop would be able to be basically constructed for roughly 15 billion, so much, much cheaper, be much faster, and actually be profitable. And that's one of the biggest problems in rail, that all over the world, rail systems, metro systems, they actually don't make sense, economic sense. They lose continuously money. So they're relying heavily on government subsidies. The Hyperloop, because of it's energy balance because you're using very little energy and you're producing energy, right, through the alternative energy, has a very low operational cost. So the idea is, so is the tube kind of lined with solar panels and whatnot? Was that what is powering this thing? Correct. So you have solar panels on top, wind, and depending on where we're building, you might even use other alternative energy modes. 
So this is a, would be interesting, f- especially for the UK, because rail in the UK is a total disaster. And there's also this idea of high-speed rail links there that are quite a hot political topic, and it's very expensive. Yeah, HS2 is yes. uh, you know very similar to basically the California high-speed rail project. We had met actually with Cameron, and he was very supportive, but um, it was a week before the Brexit. He didn't think that that would happen. So unfortunately, he's not there anymore. So, But we had great discussions. Have you spoken with uh, Theresa May's government about it? No, we haven't, to be honest with you. We ha- didn't even have time. I don't, you know, we haven't been to the UK anymore. This sounds like science fiction. Is this realistic? It sounds like science fiction because it has been used in science fiction a lot, but uh, it's actually very simple. So if you would take a normal train and you would take this normal train inside a very large tube and take the air out, now that train could go much faster, consuming less energy and therefore be cheaper to run. All we're doing is just making it more efficient, making it smaller, better to build. So we're looking into different uh, levitation technologies as well. There's a lot of work around it. But from the technology point of view, I mean, the technology is out there. It's uh, We know how to build pylons. We know how to build tubes. We know how to create a vacuum inside a tube. Actually, the CERN Hadron Collider, if you're familiar with it in Switzerland, the vacuum is much, much more difficult than the one that we're doing. The cost of maintaining the vacuum now with the latest vacuum pump technology is very low. For 10 kilometers, you're talking about something like, well, in euros, it would be, I believe, uh, somewhere around three euros or so in terms of per hour to really maintain the vacuum. Three euros per hour. It's it's nothing. But the energy savings that you have is enormous. So 90% of uh, the energy cost in a train is the air resistance. The rest is the wheels, you know, so we're taking both away. So because um, so this would be this would be effectively like a, the maglev technology, a levitating train like the bullet train, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, maglev is a very old technology. It was developed in the 1930s. The first uh, prototype of uh, was a Transrapid in Germany in the 70s. So you can imagine we're 50 years later, we have done a little bit of progress. And of course, it's easier today to innovate and to work. So we right now have uh, existing levitation technologies there, but they're all passive. And that's very important. So basically, you have a very dumb infrastructure. You don't need high power stations along the track, which is the normal maglev really requires. I mean, it's really busy, very difficult. You have a lot of construction work to be done there, a lot of power consumption. The technology that we're using is basically through motion, the capsule then starts to levitate. So that the infrastructure is very simple, doesn't require a lot of sophisticated mechanisms. I mean, that's important because you want to be keeping it fairly cheap in construction. The concept of this was first popularized by Elon Musk, is that right? The founder of Tesla and PayPal and SpaceX. But I think from memory, he said, this is something somebody should do. Basically, I don't have the time to do it. Correct. So, well, actually, the idea, I mean, everybody thinks when they talk about the Hyperloop of Elon Musk, but the idea is much, much older. You can go back. I think uh, one of the oldest was Jules Verne's son was talking about traveling inside a tube. And the first patent for a train inside a vacuum tube was actually already 1904. 1904. Yeah. There were several attempts in the past. You know, there were two research projects in the U.S. There was a very large project in the 90s, actually, in Switzerland called Swiss Metro, where they had tunnels and low-pressure environments and big maglev trains running in. And all of these kind of failed because they were relying on one government. Governments change, budget change. I mean, it's a very large project. So, you you know, it's infrastructure. It's not that easy. It's not an app. When we looked at it, we realized we had to do it in a different way. We We couldn't just build a company. We had to build a movement. To go a step back, yes, Elon basically said he looked at the high-speed rail effort here in California and said, well, this is the most expensive, slowest high-speed train in the world. We're the center of technology. We should be able to do better. Basically presented this collection of ideas, which was partially based on the past attempts, and said, I really think someone should do this. I don't have the time. I'm too busy with Tesla and SpaceX. At that time, I was part of a nonprofit incubator that was funded by NASA, and we were actually working on a new way of building companies. 
So we were working on a platform that would allow entrepreneurs to find people that have the same passion. So you see, today you do everything online, right? You get your dry cleaning, you buy your groceries, you find your boyfriend, girlfriend online. In America, you can even get divorced online. You can get divorced online? <laughs> yes, <laughs> very easy. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, both have to agree, of course. But <laughs> I guess that's another discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes to building a business, it's still very much offline. You're with a friend at a bar, drinking a beer, talking about this big problem that you should be solving, and then you start working on it. Six months later, you realize that this big problem that you thought you were solving is actually only a problem you have. There's no market. Or maybe that advertising wasn't the best way of making money. But if you have, let's say, 10, 50, 100, 1,000 people that have the same passion, they will give you their honest opinion, their ideas, their contacts, so you can build a better company. Most companies fail for lack of insight and lack of experience. We created this model, brought basically the platform in beta, and uh, around the same time as Elon was there and said, hey, this should be done. And this but was in 2012, 2013, roughly? Exactly, yes. Right. So um, we started in 2012, the platform was in 2013. So in August 2013, we brought it live. And Elon, at the same time, was out there saying, hey, you know, someone should do this. So I thought this is actually the perfect project to uh, try out our model. We reached out, asked for permission to put it onto the platform. And, you know, reached then, out to Elon Musk. Yeah, we reached out to SpaceX. My you know, late co-founder, he died two years ago, was the director of IP management for the Aerospace Corp, which is a large research organization. They had some relationships with SpaceX, so uh, we were together with the president, Gwen Shotwell. You know, in a meeting, he was like, you know, there was this idea, how about if we, you know, put it on to our platform? So we then asked our community, should we be doing this? You know, our community not only said, yeah, you should be doing this, but they said, hey, I want to be part of this. Who is your community? Just people that were they are excited about, I guess, ideas, technologies, building something. So, because this is, a, I think, an interesting idea or approach in that this is a mega project that is, in theory, could revolutionize travel. It's very expensive. It sounds very complex. And you are essentially crowdsourcing this with a bunch of, uh, what, random people around the world? <laughs> so... Not completely. Let me, to, to really understand, let me finish the initial story where basically after they said, hey, I want to be part of this, we said, okay, let's put together the company. We got a small team together, a couple of people, and said, everybody who would like to join us and work in exchange for stock options in the company with a minimum of 10 hours per week, please apply. We got 200 applications, got a team together of around 100 engineers, and started working towards a feasibility study. We got some sponsorships from uh, companies like Autodesk and Microsoft, uh, etc. We had our tools, we had the labor, and we didn't know if it would, would be actually possible, right? We were just like, okay, kind of makes sense. Let's take a look. By the end of 2014, we then finished the feasibility study. And this was a feasibility study for a specific site or just no, no, for the, the, the technology. technology itself? Actually, this feasibility was technology where we realized... The technology is there. You can, there's actually different ways on how you can do it. You can choose, but also an economic feasibility. And that was probably the part where, you know, I was more surprised really learning that there's no rail line, no metro line in the whole world that's profitable. They're all losing Is that money. true? Yeah. I mean, the only one, if you want to, is Hong Kong. And only because they are putting the real estate market together. So they're actually making money through the rent of the building. But all the others are relying heavily on government subsidies. When in real, if you look back into the past, people got very, very rich because of trains, but somehow it became government. If you're really honest, I mean, trains haven't changed for quite some time. They're very similar. If Actually, if you look at the distance between the rails, okay, that's one meter 43.5. What do you think? Um, why? Uh, maybe the first train was built that way and then it became the standard. I don't know. No, it's a Roman carriage. So basically uh, the wheel distance of, you know, the horse carriages. To accommodate the size of a horses behind. So most, because some countries changed it a little bit, but most countries today still build new infrastructure based on basically the butt of two horses. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's... 
really not a lot of not a lot of innovation. They're also very complicated. They're very huge organizations. Uh, German Railways, who is a partner of ours, we're actually working with Deutsche Bahn. Them. Yeah, there I think a hundred thousand people all over the company, and it's a very important company for for the country for example so it gets really complicated for these people to do innovation it's also that you know if you're a really smart engineer you might not necessarily go to the railways right you might want to go to facebook or to google or so there's also a little bit uh, not that the people that work at the railways are not smart but there's just an issue of recruiting the best luckily you know we through our model, you know, we get five new applications every single day. We have a team now from over 800 people all around the world. Most of them are working in exchange for stock options. So they are motivated not by money, but, but, but by passion. So effectively, you have 800 people all over the world working at least 10 hours a week, effectively pro bono, but for stock options. Pro bono is some of them are millionaires because they started early on, received the stock options, and at least on paper, based on the valuation of the company, are now millionaires. What's right? the so, company worth? <laughs> I can't disclose. So that's, that was the other thing I was going to ask. So you have Elon Musk four, uh, five, six years ago says, this is an interesting idea. Somebody should do this. Then you guys start, and then there's another company, Hyperloop One, and they also have quite an impressive array of people involved, and that looks like more of your traditional company. They have multiple funding rounds, big people like GE and Coastal Ventures backing them, whereas Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, you guys, have taken a completely different approach. How have you been able to raise money, and is it as effective if you have effectively you know, this kind of army of people spread around the world doing this in their spare time? So... After we finished our feasibility study, now there's other companies out there. And um, there's Hyperloop One, but there's a couple of others as well. Hyperloop One is the most famous one, also because at the beginning they were called very similar to us, right? They called themselves Hyperloop Technologies. They have a couple of famous or infamous venture capitalists as part of the company and had a big scandal, etc. They're very successful in raising funds. Are definitely a great company. I mean, they're trying to do the things. But... You know, it's very risky because it takes actually a lot. And what we are doing is not only a capsule inside a tube in our case. We have the opportunity to build a public transportation system the way it should be done in 2017, right? That means questioning everything, questioning the business model, questioning passenger experience. How, like, is a ticket really the best way of making money, for example? Or can we say that transportation is only the marketing and then I monetize on your time? So there's a lot of innovation that happens in our case to really build the best possible product today. It's a much bigger effort. You need this kind of structure. On the other hand, you know, in order to do this, it takes a lot of human capital, human effort. So they raised, I think, $160 million. You know, at the end, when you look at half a kilometer of tube or whatever you built there, the value exchange, I mean, most of the money went into human capital, but then you need to continue raising, right? In our case, we have been able with very little money to do a lot. We have innovated, built products. We have collaborations, as I said, with Deutsche Bahn, where some of our technology is actually going to be used in St. Trains. We have been around the world with governments. We're working on the regulation, which is probably the biggest hurdle because it's not the technology, but it's uh, the legislative framework. So we have met Merkel, Putin, um, Cameron, uh, Trump. No, Trump, not. I heard. Um, a, I heard a crazy story about <laughs> Trump. <laughs> well, he's interested in the hyperloop, but uh, so I heard that he wanted to put a hyperloop on his wall with Mexico, <laughs> and that he got he got in touch with you guys. Is that true? We received a message. Uh, we received an email, but not from Trump. So from so, someone, I don't know what their affiliation is. So, uh, but from you know, the White House or from the Trump team? No, it was or? before. It was it was before the election, and you know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure how how affiliated they are. We get a lot of emails. So it, you it, don't it, think it, you'll be building a hyperloop across the wall with Mexico, assuming <laughs> there is a wall? Well, no, right now nothing is planned. <laughs> Let's put it this way: there's a lot of opportunities and possibilities, and of course, America and Europe are maybe not the best place to start. Why? Because they're just very complicated. In America, land right acquisition is very complicated. 
being European, I'm very happy that we are having the progress that we are in, uh, that we have in Europe. Like we have a contract with the Slovakian government. We're doing uh, we're working with Benno and Czech Republic. We signed an agreement with France, so we are now doing an R&D center in Toulouse with a track outside. And uh, and you guys recently started construction of the first pod, right? Correct. The yeah. first pod that will travel in the tube. Mm-hmm. What tube is that pod going to go into? Well, it's going to take now roughly a year until the capsule is being done. So this is full scale. It's kind of like building an airplane fuselage. Then for system integration, it's going to go actually to Toulouse. In Toulouse, we're going to have a small track, so you do optimization, everything's there. And we expect over the next couple of months to announce actually the first track. So and the fir- That would be a test track? So no, like no, no, the first track is going to be something a little bit, little bit bigger. Connecting two cities, for example? Yeah, ideally, yes, of course. Or at least the first part of connecting two cities. You know, we have right now, I want to say, we have three final destinations that um, we're negotiating right now. So um, we'll see which one is the one that we think is the best one. So I guess that gets to, the, to one of the key questions is, here is, how close is this to becoming, going from a science project to actually something that you and I or our children or the next generation will be sitting in and, and you know, instead of jumping in your car and spending six hours on the highway from San Francisco to Los Angeles or from London to Edinburgh, that we could do this instead? I mean, we are ready to build. We can build the technology. Uh, There are no technological hurdles. No. I mean, what you have to understand also is right from the beginning, unfortunately, I want to say, you're not going to be going at the speed of sound. You're not going to be going at a very low pressure, probably. It's going to be gradual. Right, because the biggest issue again is the regulation, but that's not the problem. Because our goal, really, our blue ocean, or what we need to solve, is this issue that rail is not profitable. So we need to build a system that makes economical sense. We can go at the speed of sound. All those technologies are already out there. That's not that's that's not the issue. The tricky part is really putting everything together in a way that it makes economical sense. As soon as you do that, then, of course, you know, countries like Germany that spend $22 billion on their rail system. Annually. Know, is that an annual figure? Annual, yes. The New York Metro loses alone $2.2 billion a year. There's plenty of market for that. So uh, it's it's something that will happen, I, f- I believe, fairly fast. But the regulatory framework is the issue, not the technology. The technology is there. It will, you know, there's a version number one right now that we can build. There's going to be a version 169 one day. So it's going to be gradually getting better, which is also what we're going to be doing in Toulouse. You know, our model really has helped us to identify the best technologies, looking at really what the issue is has been very successful. We have 60,000 people in our community that are working with us. They are, that's the crowdsourcing part. And then we have 800 people that are working, most of them, in exchange for stock options in the company. There's 10% is full-time, which are managing the others, which are somewhere between 10 and 40 hours, right? Most people do actually much more than 10. And you're able to really look at all different aspects of technology, all different aspects of life, and really trying to build the best possible system. You know, we have done some calculations. We have taken in roughly $100 million in terms of investment. Of how, does those, that, how does that break down? It's, it's a little bit divided between cash. Cash right now is uh, 35. And that's 35 is from... I think there's a big investor, Edgewater Investments. There's a couple of funds. There's a team, of course. The team had the first opportunity to invest, and they know the company. Then there's a couple of funds that we basically selected because China is obviously an important market. Because but Edgewater is in China, correct? They're, they're a U.S. fund with Chinese connections. You know, We want to make sure that we are seen as local there as well. And then we have a lot of uh, in-kind investments where Atkins, for example, they're, they're in the UK, right? Atkins Global Construction Engineering is one of our team members. They're, they're working on uh, the feasibility study in Abu Dhabi we're doing together with the Sheikh. Um, we have Leibold Vacuum, who's the inventor of the vacuum pumps. That's uh, all our vacuum technology basically comes directly from them. They're part of our team and are receiving stock options for their work and what they're doing. So it has been very, very successful, and we were able with very little capital to create a lot of value. It's, in my opinion, also the only real way in how you can do these kind of big projects. Our model now is um, 
becoming actually fairly successful. There's a lot of interest from academia as well. So they're you know starting to study it. We have several professors as part of, of our team. And probably very soon it's going to be taught in some of the most famous business schools in, uh, in the U.S. So. So, so you've had $35 million in cash, another $70 million roughly in kind of in-kind services. I did a bit of reading before I came over here. You were talking about doing an IPO last, uh, you know, stock market float last year to raise about a hundred million. It's 2017. What's the, what is the status there? So for us, the stock market or doing a public offering is, you know, we want to do it because of our unique structure, right? So it's, we're community based. This company would not be existing if it wouldn't be for the community, for the people that really wanted to make this happen. In the U.S., unfortunately, there are some laws that prohibit people to invest into startup companies. It has been changed now recently. There's a couple of things. Problem is it's not really solving our issue. We want our community to be able to put in their $50, right, so to get an advantage of the upside and, of, of course, also the value increase that this company has and will have in the future. However, you know, we have a company to run, so we need to make sure that uh, when we do these things, they're not damaging the company. Right now, the IPO market is just not where it should be or, you know, in order for us in order to do something like that. Again, capital is not really an issue for us. We have plenty of investors that want to give us money. It's more about selecting the right ones, but it's definitely one of our first, one of our first priorities to really make sure that we can make this community be part of what we're doing that's really the only issue you know it's not about a lot of people think about an ipo or a public offering as an exit for us it's actually more start allowing them to be in there really early on is what we would like to do so in terms of the stakes here what is i mean because this is going to require billions of dollars and regulation changes etc but is there do you have a kind of a broader vision of what problems you could solve with this if this does actually take off? Well, you know, there's a lot of different aspects. When you talk about moving people uh, much, much faster, of course, I think that's that's a part where we don't really know what's going going to happen. Flights between cities that are, you know, close to each other probably don't make sense anymore. And we're working with some of the airlines that are already telling us these are probably the ones that are most interesting. Surely they're not going to want you to effectively close down airports. No, no, no. But, you know, again, we're not a competitor. We're a technology company. We're not interested in building Hyperloops all around the world. You know, there's a local, normally there's a local company, either in uh, an airline or a transportation company like Deutsche Bahn or someone else, and they would be our customer. So they would then work together with the government and implement, and we're just the technology provider. That's really what we do. So the Hyperloop in itself as a technology, but also all the technology to integrate it into existing modes of transportation, so first and last mile. Because at the end, if it takes you an hour and a half to get to the station, and then it takes you 36 minutes to get from LA to San Francisco, you're not really solving anything. So you need to think about how can we change our lives and really and those things are very important i don't think that we can grasp the potential there of course you know you can live in one city and work in another cities are becoming one because a lot of the cities in europe i mean if you're talking about vienna and bratislava for example which are the two european capitals that are the closest together they would actually become one one city What's the dis- distance between them? It's roughly 70 kilometers. So, so with the Hyperloop, you, that's like a five-minute Yeah, it's, uh, you know, well, you don't get up to full speed, but, yeah, you're talking about roughly 10. It's it's nothing, you know. Airports are a big issue right now. If you think about London, for example, you have all these different airports. and uh, it's a, you know, Yes, it's a total... <laughs> we're building more and more, yeah. and they are fairly close to the city. So, of course, with the Hyperloop, now you can connect all these airports, and they become actually terminals. Well, right now under London, which I'm sure you know, there's they're building a very expensive new underground line that r- cuts right across the city. But a hyperloop, does that always have to be a- above ground? No. You know, you at the end you will do above ground, underground, uh, tunneling. I mean, you have to because not always will you be able to stay right above, especially in cities like London or 
all the European capitals where it's really, really difficult. You also need to work with existing stations because you're very likely not going to be able to create a complete new station. All of these things are things that we are, of course, considering. So we have a module that is able to drop into existing stations. So we are able to use these existing stations. The size of the capsule and the tube, of course, fits. So you Um, put a tube inside the tube. Well, yeah. I mean, if you do underground, you need to make the the tube basically um, airtight, right? So that's important. And is the vacuum effectively just removing all air resistance? Is that what requires the most energy? No, as I said earlier, we're talking about, I think, 25 kilowatt an hour. So to well, do, I don't know, what does to that do, mean? To do 10 kilometers. 25 kilowatts. That I believe it's two, do- two euros and 50 if it's 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So in the U.S., I think it's 12 cents a kilowatt hour. So that's a cost basically for 10 kilometers. The vacuum technology that we have developed with, you know, is so advanced now that the cost to maintain the vacuum is minimal. It costs a little bit more to pump down, but you do that once. You know, if you're outside, of course, that's powered through the alternative energy. You're not running anything in that in that during that period. But no, that's a lot of the arguments that we hear. You know, yes, but maintaining that vacuum is very complicated, very expensive. No, it's not. Inventor of the vacuum pumps is part of our team. If there's someone that knows this, it's them. We've done all our calculations. We have done all our system architecture for vacuum. So we know that we are able to achieve the pressure, maintain the pressure, and maintain it with a cost. And of course, we already have some percentages in there for errors. Is a way to think about this, take a plane, remove the wings, and then put it in a tube. And, you know, because if you're at 35,000 feet, the air is very thin, so you can... It takes less stress to go very fast. Correct. So it's the same concept, right? It's the same concept, much, much higher. What's in, much higher? The In terms of like 35,000 feet, you are, is still very low. So we're, we're going much, much higher, so almost out of space. We're roughly talking, I think, about over 30 kilometers. So the, the equivalent the would be difference. like flying at 30 kilometers over the Earth. Yes. As, so not, as opposed not, to not, four or five if you're in an air. Yeah, so not yet out of space, but close to it. Higher than Philip Baumgartner when he jumped, for example. The Red, um, the Red Bull guy. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. But it's also 10 times less dangerous than an airplane because, of course, an airplane is in the sky. You have birds that are flying around. You need to, if anything happens, you need to land. We are able, we are in a controlled environment. You don't have anything that can be inside there. You don't have a cow that can go on the track or a car that can stand there. You don't depend on weather. You're completely independent. It's controlled by a computer system with human supervision. From the failure points alone, it's roughly 10 times safer. This all sounds too good to be true. It's very easy when you look at it. I mean, if you think about it... So I guess with all of these things, if if it's proven and it's so much more superior, why is it not already out there? Why aren't we traveling around like this now? Again, because I think it's a very large project and it's very difficult to be pushed through, through a government. It takes some time, right? It, it would take someone, I wouldn't say like John F. Kennedy, who said, let's go to the moon. And now it was a project and within 10 years we went to the moon. I mean, that's also a comparison, right? We, we were able to, to go to the moon within 10 years in the 60s. Why... Does anybody believe there's a problem with moving a capsule inside a tube where you create a low, like where you take basically the air out? It's it's not it's not a technical issue, but it's very hard to get through, and the regulation is the biggest challenge. Um, one of the reasons why we're working with the Emirates, why we're working with India, why we're working, you know, with a lot of these other regions, and all of them because we need to continuously advance. It, it is really, I, I, I think that it was really needed to make it into this movement. Today, you have several companies that are trying to do this. You're a lot of students that are participating in the SpaceX competition. I mean, everybody's talking at the end about the Hyperloop, and that's really what was necessary. The system, again, a couple of years ago, you could have done it, but it would have been maybe still a little bit too expensive. So Swiss Metro, for example, was technically completely viable. This was in the 90s. This was in the 90s, yeah. But they were tunneling, 
which is more expensive, especially if you think about a huge maglev train. So in our case, we have smaller capsules. They're roughly 12 feet in is the tube diameter. The capsule in itself is uh, 9 feet. So they're fairly small. So how many people fit in there? The difference lies a little bit in how you seat them. So right now, we are having between 30 and 40. But the way that we're thinking in about interior feet, design... 30 or 40 people in a 9-foot tube? Or pod? Well, that's diameter. Oh, right, right. Of course, yeah, lengthwise, so it would be... 100, so 100. 30 okay. meters, roughly. Right, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be a <laughs> bit snug. a little bit tight. <laughs> but, you know, again, what we do is much more than just the simple part of the capsule inside the tube. It's, it's really important that you start thinking about what else needs to happen to integrate that into our system. It's the same like we choose from the beginning to move forward with passengers, which took us a little bit longer than freight. But the problem with freight is if you start with freight, then you risk that you have to redo the whole system when you start thinking about passengers. Because passengers, you know, I mean, freight doesn't die. Freight doesn't complain. You want to make sure that um, the system is very comfortable. You know, it works for a two-year-old as much as for an 80-year-old that it's safe, that you have the safety mechanisms in place. So if something happens, because of course things can happen, you need to be able to get everything in place to get people out there in a safe way. So you have emergency exits, you depressurize within seconds. It takes us, I think, five seconds to stop from full speed, which is not going to be a great experience when you stop. That's, be that's, alive, that's so. uh, some serious whiplash, I would imagine. <laughs> well, it's a five. It's a five G stop, but that's something that, when it's about, either you stop or something really bad might happen. So uh, in that case, it's still it's an if emergency. If a cow has found his way inside the tube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the advantage of the system is, uh, you know, there's a lot. You're you're talking about more the physical internet, right? So smaller packages, more on demand. You don't have to wait until the whole train is full. You can be a little bit more efficient, which also means from a terrorist part, if you want. So it's actually less and less an uh, attractive target because you would make more damage in the London tube probably. There's just more people in that in that case. But that doesn't mean that things can happen. You never know. And you have to prepare to make it the safest mode of transportation. Um, that's exactly what we're doing. So we're looking into a lot of technologies to make sure the capsule is safe, is pressurized. To, um, to We have valves that close and close the area so we can depressurize within seconds and get you out safely through the emergency exits. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In your conversations with governments, how big an issue, or is it an issue, the the idea of what this would do for pollution? Sometimes. It, it depends really on the government, <laughs> very honestly. Of course, there is a general movement to move over to green and alternative energy, and so we fit into that bill, which is great. Um, some are of course, excited about the speed and what it would do maybe to the economy. And they're just having a lack of infrastructure and problems. And all of them definitely are excited about the possibility, you know, to save billions of dollars of the household budget and invest th that money maybe into education or into anything else that's important there. Because 
public transportation is really a big part of where our tax money goes. We don't realize it. And it's the same problem with buses, it's even roads, right? So um, that's also why our effort is a little bit larger than just the capsule inside the tube, but also like thinking, okay, how can we do this today in 2017? And some of these technologies then can be used as we're doing with Deutsche Bahn inside trains or inside a plane or inside a self-driving car, for example. Is this a race to see who can commercialize this first with the other Hyperloop companies? I think that the media maybe sees it like that a little bit. I think the general public don't really cares. Uh, they only care about like seeing this happening. And I think it's, in general, I think it's positive that there's the more people are there, you know, the sooner it gets there and everybody has their successes and we all can celebrate our successes. Of course, inside the teams, you have kind of sometimes these rivalries. So as the CEO of my company, I'm always trying to make them understand that, again, it's only beneficial for us and, um, you know, we need to concentrate on us and not on anybody else. I have a hope that in the future there would be the possibility that we all collaborate, but uh, that's the nature of what we do, right? We're collaborating. Um, so our doors are always open for everybody that wants to work with us and do things. However, you know, I understand that people have their own agendas and, you know, investors and you're trying to raise big amount of funds and it's great. It's a, it's one way of doing it. It's not the way that I think is the right way, but, uh, you know, it's a very legitimate way and I'm sure they're making amazing things uh, in the company. When we talk about Hyperloop One and the others that are com coming or trying, you know, again, I think there's going to be plenty of space for everybody and uh, there's a lot of things that need to be ideally fixed when we talk about public transportation. It's not only about who has the best levitation technology or who has the best proportion technology or who can move uh, the port at a faster G, all the other things. And that's going to take a long amount of time. And at the end, when we talk about regulations, when we want to talk here in the US with the Secretary of Transportation, I think we should all talk together to try to create these regulations. We are doing it now in most countries around the world. We're trying to create that discussion and to create this framework, others will definitely hopefully also benefit from that. So I think you don't want to be the only one in a market. You know, that means that there's no market. And do you have a sense, uh, um, going back to this, if you know, talking about what it took to get to the moon, when you're talking about tens of billions of dollars, and you know, you look out the window, and you see highways and parking lots and big airports, uh, there seems to be a lot that needs to be rethought uh, or moved for this to actually really happen. Do you, I mean, what is, which I guess it gets to the point of, is this actually going to happen or will, do you think this will remain kind of an on the drawing board? No, it's definitely happening. First of all, you know, when you compare the moon landing, I think we're in a different time. Right, so we have the internet, we have distributed teams, we can learn, we can, development and innovation has become so much faster. You know, there's, again, most of the technology is already there, but years ago you would have to develop it yourself because you didn't really know that, that it was there. But we are able to collaborate with everybody, so that's definitely a big difference, and you can do things much, much cheaper than you used to. And it's the same when you talk about startups, right? In 2000, it was very expensive to have a startup because you had to, to get servers and spend millions of dollars in service. Today, you go to Amazon and uh, a couple of hundred bucks, you're, you're, you're working. It's, it's the same here. The infrastructure part, you know, every problem that you have, you just have to think about and you find solutions. There's a lot of different ways. Tunneling is one. But the system in itself... Uh, is actually from the beginning has a big advantage because being on pylons means that you're much more flexible. It means that you need much less land. It means that you can go along existing right-of-ways. So if there's a rail line, as long as it's fairly straight, you can use that. If there's a highway, you can use that. So you don't need to completely buy new land everywhere. Um, you can use existing infrastructure and that's important so you know it's it has a fairly small footprint and so what's next for for your company well we're doing a lot of things so um the capsule of course now is one of that's in production so, so that'll be built uh, over the next year 
Correct. And have you built, have you broken ground on a, a test track or that first track where that actually that would be used? Toulouse, uh, we now are working with architects on refurbishing and establishing our R&D center. And we're going to be starting construction there as well. And then, as I said earlier, over the next couple of months, we're going to have uh, some big announcements regarding you know the first actual track. So uh, we expect within three years from when we start breaking ground that you can actually be inside the Hyperloop. So, and that's what it takes because then you're there, you, we can show that all the things that we were talking about are real, right? That you have this energy balance, that you have the operational costs. Right now, of course, everything's there, the tests are there, the simulations are there, but nothing beats, right, the first product. In the meantime, again, we're doing a feasibility study in Abu Dhabi right now, where we have uh, where we have Sheikh uh, Falah Nayat as our official sponsor and partner. He's the brother of the ruler of the Emirates, so I would say we're in good company there. They're very innovative. They want to push and move forward, so the support is great. We are doing now a feasibility study in Indonesia, which is also you know one of the largest populations in the world, and they have, of course, big, big problems. We um, in Europe, Slovakia and Czech Republic. So we're, we're keeping ourselves busy. And of course, we're continuously, continuously developing new technologies. So as I said, we have version number one ready, but we also already have other solutions that then are going to be version two, three and four that allow us to build the system safer, cheaper, maybe faster. All of these things are important. And so the version one you said might be a bit it won't be the 760 mile an hour pod. It can't, no, it, no, no, the, the version number one is capable of doing 760 miles per hour. The technology, again, that's there. It's more about the construction cost, for example, that's, uh, or certain processes that might get simpler with the next versions. But realistically talking, you know, it's when you go to a government, they will, you know, they will allow you to move people, but they want to see a certain amount of time and uh, you know steps. so so you will yeah exactly so you will start in areas that are completely safe right so you can have a low pressure environment but maybe it's not outer space it's still you know in an area where you can breathe where you can you know it's uh, so you can show slowly slowly that um, you know you have a safety record and again it's not the only advantage the speed it's about building a system that makes economic sense. So we have those two that we're balancing. So potentially in three years, somewhere in the world, we'll be able to buy tickets for Hyperloop. Well, ideally it's free. I'm sorry? I said ideally it's free. Uh, you're going to need to explain that one. <laughs> well, I kind of tried a little bit earlier to, um, it's, it's about thinking what is the best business model. For me, the notion of a ticket is very much 1800 someone thought the best way to make money is a ticket. But, and the um, best way to build a rail is the, based on the width of the horses behind. <laughs> Basically. But there's a lot of different ways of making money. So if you, if you think about video games, for example, right? When I was a kid, I had to buy them. They were very expensive. Today, my kids, I mean, we don't pay for the video games, but if I don't pay attention, it costs me much, much more. And actually, the video game companies are making way more money than ever before. Because so, people are paying for stuff inside the game as they play. For, for example, example, yes. So you have a whole completely new way of economy. If you think about Facebook and Google, they're very, I mean, profitable companies. On average, I think on Facebook, it's 40 or 50 minutes in the U.S. that a person spends. How much time do you spend in, uh, in transportation? It took me an hour to get down here from <laughs> so, San Francisco. You know, so you sp it's actually much more time and uh, you can monetize that. So if transportation is only the marketing, and now I monetize on your time by giving you a great experience, giving you access to an ecosystem, to tools, to ways on where you can spend your money, you know, now I might actually make more money in other ways. So, so is there a vision that this becomes like a Ryanair where you have to pay five bucks for a biscuit and you have advertisements and lottery tickets being sold to you the whole time? So honestly with you, I think I'm a fan of Ryanair in terms of because they broke the model. I, it's a little, maybe a little bit stuck in the past, right? But uh, think about what they did, right? They're offering flights for 99 cents. 
you but you can do it much better it's not it's again the moment that you're monetizing on the time of the passenger you're not cramping them into the seat because you want them to have a good time you want them to really consume you want them to that's the thought behind it but yeah Ryanair went probably into the right direction I think that today you can do things much better but the thought process of thinking what is actually my business model is my business model selling a ticket or is my business model doing something else maybe it's a lottery ticket or maybe it's I think Ryanair most of the money is actually through the overall travel experience and the booking etc so um, and that makes completely sense and that's exactly in terms of the direction the right direction now in terms of passenger experience personally I'll make sure that uh, that's going to be a better one I'm six so four, no, yeah, so, yeah. you know I need to be sure that I'm comfortable and I also I believe I mean there's we have done a lot of studies so we have done a lot of studies and in terms of digital and we can see where we can make money and it's um it's not about advertising it's really more about an ecosystem it's about giving you opportunities to consume giving you tools that make your life easier you are happy and um you know maybe you're doing something that before you had to do at home but now you can do it while you're being moved right by being transported and it saves your time and makes your life better that's at the end really what we're working on right so as a company we're a little bit unique we're not again we're passion driven which sometimes is also a challenge but one of the things is for sure that everybody in the company is trying to build the best possible product when i started talking about it, a lot of people heard always like Oh, advertising. No, no, it's not about advertising. Advertising, maybe it's a part, right? So when we talk about virtual windows, for example, we have a project that we call virtual windows where we're using head tracking to give you the illusion to look outside of a window. And All um, oh, right, because you're in a tube, of course. Yes, right. correct. And now you can go through any kind of environment. It could be Jurassic World, Terminator Park, I don't know, Game of Thrones, uh, you know, and the same one we can do with transparent screens. So we actually have windows. You can look outside, but when you go into a tunnel, now it changes. Or when while you're going around, maybe Lego Batman flies by and knocks on your window, right? But it's ideally something that I call it experience content. So things were we can come up with these fun little things and it's actually interesting for you because then the advertising works. So, uh, you know, I think that we're also seeing a little bit of shift there, right? So with, with targeted advertising, even on Facebook, if you think back in the internet and you think about the early 2000s and we had all these banners and blinking and, oh my God, yeah, so... Today, it's definitely, you know, I actually sometimes see stuff, oh, I'm like thankful for that uh, because I was actually exactly looking for that. It's scary sometimes, but uh, so we can do things better. We can do, and passenger experience is the, the, the most important part. So everything we do inside the company is uh, with a passenger in the center. So I know you probably have to go and you've been very generous with your time, but I wanted to uh, ask one more and then I'll let you go. Do you see a point where you're going to have to, for lack of a better term, become a grown-up company or a more traditional company where you get to a point where having this kind of army of part-timers around the world becomes a hindrance rather than a strength? <laughs> I get asked that question quite a lot, actually. We are a grown-up company. We have full-time employees as well, but... We don't make a difference there. It's only, I mean, at the end, they are employees, if you want. So they're contractors, but they're, they're full-time as well. I don't make a difference between getting paid stock options or getting paid salaries. It's actually, At the end, it's only a choice. And it works really great for us because it, everybody builds a value. You're receiving stock options. So you're receiving an opportunity, an option to create value and make money based on that. We're able to expand we're able to innovate we're able to research in areas where normally if you would use traditional funds you wouldn't be researching because you would choose one very early in our case we are capable of continuing to to look it allows us to be better build better products i actually believe that it's going to be the other way around i think that we are the future of work and a lot of the discussions that I'm having, and I just had a discussion with uh, someone from Deloitte yesterday exactly about that topic, are exactly this. I mean, we, the way we, we are working is going to change. People are going to be working more 
based on their skill sets, like the things that they're really, really good at. Because at the end, if you think about like in your job, you're probably doing 20% what you're really good at and 80% things that could do someone else who would make maybe 10% or, or well, maybe not 10, but 40% of your salary. And that's a big advantage. So for me, 10 hours from one of the top engineers at NASA is much more valuable than having some other mediocre engineer full-time. And all I need them to do is this specific thing. I worked in a company in the past where it was a startup company where the head engineer, I mean, they, ma they were making $250,000, $300,000 a year. Okay, they were working maybe a week on their specialty, on an experiment, and then the other three or four weeks of the month, they were setting up experiments. So this guy was actually turning metal somewhere in the shop, like basically hanging around, just trying to build everything together until then again. For a couple of days, they were doing, they were running the tests, and that's really when you needed him. So it's a waste. In the future of work, in my opinion, we'll be working on the things we're really good at for several companies, and we might get paid in cash, or we might get paid in stock options, right? So uh, we have a bunch of 25% uh, entrepreneurs. 25% of the time as a minimum, right? They're entrepreneurs, and the rest of their, their time, they're normal employees. I would do it personally, you know, if I meet a startup company and I like the project, I'm happy to participate if I'm passionate about what they're doing, if I get something for it even more. You know, I really believe that that's how we're going to be moving in the future. We are doing a lot of things with distributed teams all around the world, which is not always easy, but we're building tools, we're making it work. And it also takes specific people. So we had, or we have more than four or 5,000 applicants we have a team of 800. It's not that we take everybody. You know, we need to make sure that the people that we bring on board, first of all, that we need them. And also in terms of management, it gets tricky sometimes. So we're growing and we have the pains of every company that grows. We're building the tools to bring in more people. Being working this way, when you're working in a distributed team, and you are, you might have noticed that when you work with good people, it doesn't make a difference. The problem is when the people are, you know, maybe not as engaged or don't take that much ownership, then an in-person meeting is a little bit better. But if you work with really good professionals, working all across the globe is not an issue. And at the end, all the large companies do the same thing. They're distributed anyways. So we now have offices in LA, in Barcelona. We're opening up Toulouse. We're in Slovakia, in Bratislava. We have... Um, offices and companies in the Emirates. So, and everywhere you have a local team as well. So, it's already how we, we, we're working. What we're doing is we're not going to grow up if you want so. We're going to stay young <laughs> because that's really what makes us better. And I do believe um, that this is, you know, more and more companies will be using a similar model. I hope so. I think that's really one of the opportunities we have to change. I want to say the world, but you know, one of the big problems is that entrepreneurs today are working on a, on an app, right? They want to be the next Instagram, the next WhatsApp. Um, there's a couple of people that are trying to change the world, like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. But you know, it's really easy to change the world when you're a billionaire. What about the 19-year-old entrepreneur that wants to change the world? So our model allows those people to do that. Very soon. We're not announcing it now, but very soon it's going to be starting to be taught at some of the top schools in the U.S. So it gives us kind of also a stamp of approval for the model, definitely. And uh, it works. I mean, we have been doing it now for over three years. It's amazing. It's the best thing that I've ever done. It's not perfect. I think nothing is perfect. We have learned a lot over the last three years, but I think there's a lot to it. I always felt as an entrepreneur that when I had employees that I was pulling the wagon and every person that I hired was a weight more on that wagon that I had to pull. Today, I'm still in front of the wagon and I'm pulling, but there's a bunch of people pushing. That's what makes us stronger and better. Being open is uh, the best way when it comes to innovation. It's amazing what people can bring, what companies can bring. And, you know, when you talk to someone who says, hey, I think what you're doing is cool. Um, the next thing what you should say is, hey, why don't you help me? And if you do that, you know, they will. That's, that's where we are. I would never change this model for anything else. It's fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And good luck with it all. Thank you. That's all the time we have. 
I want to thank Dirk Alborn. Uh, I wish him luck. Uh, it seems like one of those things that uh, if people have been trying for a century, perhaps there are good reasons why it has yet to happen. But we'll see. These are extraordinary times we're living in. And please, uh, if you like what you hear, make a stop at iTunes. Give a rating and review to the podcast. It helps. Uh, and you can, of course, also read me every week in the Sunday Times. Until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.